0: Of Community Bible Church on the web at WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogie. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Be diligent to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who
1: does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to The Bible Line, and as always, it's great to be here, and we're happy to take your questions as you've been studying God's word. Maybe there's a particular issue that you'd like biblical counsel on or a passage that has been difficult and I might be able to help. I'll do my best by the grace of God or an issue in your personal life or ministry or church that you'd like biblical counsel on. All you need to do is pick up the phone, call us locally. It's 525-1859. We have many, many internet listeners who join us this hour. And for those on the internet, we do have a toll-free number, and that's 877-877. W-A-G-P, the call letters is 980, 877-W-A-G-P-980. Or if you're more comfortable, you can uh, email us here directly into the studio and your question will pop up on the screen. The email address is tbl for the Bible line at dot t-b-l at wagp.net. If you do call, we give, of course, preference to live callers. Uh, you can di- t- dictate your question. If you don't want to go on the air live, uh, we'll be happy to receive it however you'd
0: like to give it. Uh, Rick, good morning. I see you have a new introduction there for us. uh, We we do indeed. We try and freshen things up periodically. And I think our last intro is about 10 years old, so uh, it was time to do something. And uh, we have got a number of questions and some callers already uh, calling in. We had one caller that uh, asked to be called back. We're trying to reach them now. Um, So let's go ahead and... uh, well, while we're waiting for that, let's read our first question. This well, is we have from, one with, that's oh, waiting here, go. so let's go. There. Ah, good. They did make it. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Yes, good morning, um, uh, Pastor. I'm, I'm, I've got some uh, serious uh, issues um, regarding my marriage. Um, it's been going on for quite a few years. Um, you know, a little synopsis right quick. It was uh, I was addicted to drugs. My wife threw me out. Um, God got, a, I finally gave my life to Christ completely, and that has completely changed my life around over the last six years. We got back together after three years separation, but we still have issues with her son, which as I abused, um, earlier in our marriage, um, he's now 21 years old, he still lives in the home, and he's a big cause of the problems that we have. Um, I, uh, and she wants to seek a divorce, we constantly argue. And I'm really not sure where to go right now. And I need some help, some professional counseling in my area that hopefully, um, you know, God can work this out. I've never been, ma- this is my first marriage, my wife's second, and I hold my marriage to a very high standard uh, as a covenant with God and my wife.
1: Are you uh, currently attending a local church?
2: Yes, sir, I am. Um, my pastor uh, has also tried, he counseled with me over the last six years. Uh, he's been fantastic. God used him mightily in my life, um, but it's tough because my wife keeps saying that uh, it's coming from a man's perspective. Um, he doesn't know how I feel, uh, so she doesn't trust his 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 view. My stepbrother is also a pastor, and she said he said things because of he's a guy and he's my my brother. Um,
1: right, I understand. It's
2: it's, well... it's it's very tough, and she's uh. You know, she seems to be resistant to being led according to biblically uh perspectives.
1: Would she identify herself as a born again Christian or she would say no?
2: Oh no, she says she is. Um I had to start going to church to start dating her fifteen years ago. I We'd see. We'd be married fifteen years uh beginning next month. We don't have any children together, but she had three and I had one.
1: I see. I see. Well, obviously it's a difficult situation you're in, but it's not an impossible situation. Uh, there are certainly some things that if you were in my office that I would address uh, to with each of you personally as a pastor uh, to make sure that you know your hearts are clean before the Lord from you know prior marriages that you've uh you know, abandoned and sought to marry each other. And those are important issues. If uh, God's blessing is going to be experienced in a marriage, Jesus said, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. He says, if one marries uh, one who's been divorced from a husband, he commits adultery. Those are not unforgivable sins, but they are sins. And they are sins that have to be dealt with and addressed and Uh, to make sure that God's blessing is there, but all things being equal, assuming you've taken some of those steps, then I would say a couple of things. Um, Obviously, you can't make her do anything. Um, She hasn't uh, actually filed for divorce yet. Is that correct? She's just threatening at this point?
2: Yeah, but this is like, uh, you know, in the last six years, this is like the fifth time she said she wants out, she wants a divorce. I understand. And main problem is her 21-year-old Uh, as she calls him his boy who doesn't work Uh, he doesn't um, go to school he's just loafing doesn't you know his job was to you know help around the house clean the house the dishes and he doesn't even do that stuff well and he he does halfway or only when he wants something and i I tend to say something about it and it causes a major risk and a problem
1: I understand. I understand. I understand. But right, right now, obviously, your, your marriage is of utmost importance. And the highest relationship that God makes next to our personal relationship with him is not the parent-child relationship, but the parent-parent relationship. And that's where I would give my focus. I know right now you want to fix this 21-year-old boy, and your wife carries a lot of resentment because you did abuse him, and so she's obviously very protective of him and understandably so. I know you've been repentant, I'm sure, and you've asked for forgiveness from him and from her, but still there's that baggage that comes from you know your past years. And so a starting place is not to really focus on your relationship with your stepson, but to focus solely on your relationship with your wife. Um, my suggestion would be to see if your wife would agree to go with you to a family life conference. A family life conference, uh, they're held, held in about 50 cities around America each year. Uh, they It was a ministry of Campus Crusade, still is, but it was initially started for uh, missionary couples. When my wife and I went to our first uh, marriage conference in 1979, uh, we were engaged uh, in planning to be married. And uh, it was just for Campus Crusade for Christ staff, uh, because there were so many of us that were young. We had left the campus ministry or were involved in campus ministry in one of the ministries of crusade and found our spouse and... Uh, You know, we often lived hundreds of miles away from our church homes where we would receive the typical counseling. And so Campus Crusade, since at that time it was largely a ministry that recruited its staff directly off the college campus, saw a need of ministry to them. So we went to one in Atlanta and it was a great conference and We realized, hey, we have a lot of friends who could benefit from this. And so it then became an official ministry of Campus Crusade. We went back five years later, took 10 couples with us to Atlanta. Uh, There weren't 300 Campus Crusade staff uh, and affiliates in the room. On that occasion, there was 3,000 that had come. And the ministry began to grow and to blossom. It's an equivalent of about 20 hours of good, solid biblical counseling. But it will walk you through the typical threats to marital oneness. Uh, when God marries a person, he says they're no longer two, but one. That's true positionally, and God wants it to be true experientially. But there are many threats that uh, hinder that oneness that God wants people to know uh, physically, emotionally, uh, spiritually, in their relationship with their bride or their husband And so the Family Life Conference focuses first on those threats, and it helps people to see, oh, I see why we're having so many problems. And then uh, that's usually typically Friday night, and the format has not changed in 30-plus years. Uh, Then they go through, well, what are the solutions to those threats? And there's a number of additional workshops and time together and alone with your spouse where you work through some, uh, some issues. So that would be a great thing to do. They're very fun. They're held in uh, typically uh, four- or five-star hotels, so the atmosphere is quite pleasant. Um, they're not cheap. Uh, they are expensive, but it would be a great investment, and that's where I would start right now. Um, you've tried your pastor. Um, you've tried your brother-in-law. She uh, is a little bit shaded and cost cautious towards, uh, you know, you're going in that direction. So this would be kind of some neutral ground. And I would encourage you to go online to uh, familylife.org or call 1-800-FAMILY and uh, ask them for information of where their Family Life conferences will be. There'll be one in the city near you up there. You're calling from Rhode Island today, and so there'll be one near you, and that's what I would um, suggest. That's where I would start. All right. I appreciate that caller and their question. I hope that will get them started. Uh, If I had them here in my church, one of the things I would require of them, Rick, is to go through the discovery class. Uh, That Back to Basics course is online uh, at searchthescriptures.org. The ones that we have posted right now, the entire course is not up there, but the first 25 weeks are up there of the 40 weeks that we cover and uh, the weeks that are there are the nuts and bolts of the Christian life. And many times, couples come into my office, and they want me to counsel them, and a prerequisite is that they go through the discovery class. And on occasion, they'll say to me, well, that's just for new Christians. And I'll say, well, it is largely for new Christians. Uh, that's our initial discipleship year with them. But it's also for people who've never been discipled. Billy Graham puts 90 plus percent of the born-again Christians in the United States is babes in Christ. I don't think he's far off. Uh, It's also for mature Christians who want to know how to disciple other people. But I'll often say to these couples, listen, I need to know that you have a foundation, the basics, and the nuts and bolts of, of walking with God. And if you really understood the principles and were applying them in the discovery class, you wouldn't be in my office today. Because you'd be walking in the Spirit, and as you walk in the Spirit, you bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if those nine qualities are growing and deepening and developing in each person's life, that makes for a great marriage and a great home in which to raise your children. So that's where I would also encourage you to go. But she's not there right now, so I'd start with the Family Life Conference and then go from there. Let's go to our next question or call her.
0: All right. Uh, Aloysius from Worcester, Massachusetts, writes, Is there any way that you can connect me with someone who will be willing to disciple me? Uh, it seems like the passion I once had is dying out slowly, but surely even while in Bible college at the moment.
1: Well, um, you know, if you're in Bible college and you're not really passionate for Christ. There's some issues that are going on in in your heart that you need to address. The heart of the problem is always a a problem in the human heart. And so there's some shortcomings uh, that have unfolded. I'm assuming you're in a good Bible college, and there's, um, there's some opportunities up there in the Northeast that I'm familiar with, uh, the Southern Baptists have uh, planted a new seminary. They're a Northeast branch. It's meeting at a church in Boston, about 40 minutes away from where you are. Uh, the conservative Baptists there in Worcester out of uh, Denver also have a, a seminary uh, in, in Bible school that you could certainly take advantage of. So I'm assuming you're in a good, solid one. Um, but again, what I would say to this young man is, uh, listen, go online and take the time to listen to the Back to Basics series because, again, it teaches you how to walk with God. And if you need someone to disciple you to walk with God um, and you're dependent on a person, then you have an unhealthy walk with God. Now, I'm not dismissing the fact that God uses teachers in the body of Christ to equip us and pastors. Uh, That's uh, the function of a pastor teacher is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, to open the word of God up and to teach them and to ground them in the faith. Um, But there are some views of discipleship that sprung up about 35 and 40 years ago that are really somewhat new and somewhat antithetical to what the Bible would actually teach about discipleship. Uh, we often take Matthew twenty-eight twenty, go, therefore, and make disciples, and we interpret it to mean go, therefore, and do discipleship, and that's not what the verse is saying. The word disciple there is synonymous with converts. Uh, we call it the Great Commission in deference to the Limited Commission that was given earlier in the ministry of Christ. It's also recorded in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, just go to the way of the house of Israel because God was underscoring and highlighting his commitment to keep his promises to the Jewish people. When there was utter rejection from the leadership of Israel, then he said, go therefore and make disciples now of all peoples, all nations. You make converts. Uh, It's really doing evangelism, and that's one important dimension to a healthy Christian life. I don't meet healthy, vibrant, passionate Christians who are not involved in the work of evangelism. Uh, It just doesn't happen. In fact, if you look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit as it relates to his filling us, you will see time and time and time again as associated in the Acts of the Apostles that it's connected as in the Great Commission and passages like Luke 24 with doing the work of an evangelist. So some people don't have the gift of evangelism. All of us are called to go and make converts, make disciples to do the work of an evangelist. And it's about impossible to be engaged in outreach, in caring for the souls of men, and not to be passionate for Christ. And what sometimes happens in a Bible college is people get caught up in a theology that's important and essential, and they climb up into a white tower, uh, an ivory tower of learning. And they need to get their feet back on solid ground and be engaged in personal ministry and evangelism. That's just basic to the Great Commission. Go make converts. When people are saved, they're to be baptized, then they're to be taught. And so all three dimensions are very critical dimensions of the Great Commission that God calls his church to. Anyway... um, so let's start there and uh, go listen to the Back to Basics series and uh, ask, And I'm going to address a number of issues in that series that you can listen to online that will get you thinking and I think hopefully on the road to good, solid spiritual health.
0: 525 toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has Jason from Yuma, Arizona. Who writes I would like Pastor Rogie to explain the biblical position on whether taking a retirement pension violates Romans 13:8. Money is not free and usually comes with attached agreements. Military pensions are attached by the fact retirees are subject to the uniform code of military justice, a military law even after completing their service, and they can be called back to duty if the government deems they are needed, usually in time of war. So a pension seems more like an interest-free loan that may someday be called in. I don't think Abraham would have taken a pension based on genesis fourteen twenty three and twenty four It also seems that taking a pension violates the principle of not allowing ourselves to become slaves to a lender proverbs twenty two seven Thank you for your biblical perspective
1: Well, it's an interesting question i I, I think um you're probably not understanding accurately this whole issue of debt. Uh, When the Bible says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law, it's not dismissing the possibility of ever borrowing money. Uh, God's word does not uh, forbid uh, all borrowing. If he did, then God would be contradicting himself when he says to the Jewish people, you might want to read Deuteronomy 28 through 30, about the essence of that. God says, listen, if you obey me, I will bless you. Uh, There are some blessings of God that are contingent on obedience. There are other blessings of God that are unconditional in nature, and God's going to pull it off whatever you do. But if you disobey me, God says, then uh, I'll not bless you and I'll discipline you. When he speaks about obeying him, he said, one of the blessings is instead of being the borrower in Deuteronomy 28, I'll make you the lender. Well, if it's a blessing to be able to lend money, then if indeed uh, that is a blessing of god then it it is equally uh admissible to borrow money because jesus would or god would not be saying through moses that you know you can lend money to help other people be disobedient now lay that aside you know when you think about debt it needs to be thought of in the broad range of the word of god god discourages debt in the bible God is very cautious about debt or teaches us to be very cautious about debt. In fact, if you lived in the theocracy of Israel, every seven years, all debts were canceled. So if you came to me in year six and you wanted to borrow $50,000, I would know at the end of year uh, six, at the beginning of year seven, that all those debts would be canceled and you'd walk home free. So God had a very conservative view of debt and does to this day. And indeed, you quote Proverbs accurately that the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And there are things that Christians today go into debt on that I think are very unwise. When you have to put the um, groceries on a credit card, not for the convenience or maybe the benefits that you would get from using a particular credit card, but because you don't have the money, then there's something wrong in that equation. And I have taught a whole course on uh, stewardship of money. It's uh, six and a half hours long that will walk you through what the Bible says about stewardship, about saving, about debt, about giving and investing. And all of these principles work together, and you cannot isolate one from another. Some people think, well, I tithe, and since I'm tithing, why is God not blessing me? Well, it's more than just tithing. There are other principles that God gives in reference to money. And so I think it is wise for a Christian to become debt-free. But to use your illustration, uh, if I'm in the military or if I work with a company, uh, and I think the equation is equal. I know you say, well, if I'm in the military and I you know, retire, they could call me up. Well, it is true. They can call you up. They don't generally call people up after four or five years, I'm told. Uh, I have some friends, uh, two of whom are generals in the United States Marine Corps, And um, I've talked to them about a lot of issues over the years, just working in a military town. Uh, In either case, um, yeah, you could be called up, but then you are really questioning, is that an evil thing to serve in the military? And it's not an evil thing. Uh, When John the Baptist had soldiers coming to him, uh, John didn't say, well, get out of the army. He said, no, if you're going to be a soldier, you need to be a good soldier and a soldier of integrity. And he taught them that that's how their repentance should be displayed. So God's not against the military. And when I come to Romans 13, uh, that's one of the major issues that's addressed in that chapter in the first seven verses. What does God really say about, about the military, about the government yielding the sword and in what situations and in what cases is it permissible in honoring to the lord so it's um, it's not a bad thing to have a pension any more than it's a bad thing to use a bank and to have interest being collected in the bank much like interest is collected in a pension fund if it's managed well now some of them have obviously been managed very foolishly and with the uh, fall of the economy Uh, There have been millions and millions of dollars lost, especially in state pension funds all across the country. And a lot of people don't know what's going on in those. Even in the state of South Carolina, we have serious, serious problems for state workers, but they're not going to feel it for another five years or so. But if, if um, if these problems are not corrected, they lost hundreds of millions of dollars the way they were invested in our state. And in five to 10 years, when a, when this huge retirement um, issues become due, our state's in serious trouble, unless, of course, they're able to fix it between now and then, and I certainly hope they are. But it's not wrong to be in a pension fund any more than it's wrong to put your money in the bank. If it were evil to put your money in the bank, and I've heard Christians say that, well, if I put my money in the local bank, what if they make a loan to um, Planned Parenthood? Uh, for some clinic. Well, you know, they can make a a loan to righteous causes and unrighteous causes. It's virtually impossible. Now, there might be times when you can, you know, choose one bank over another because of some moral guidelines that they have when it comes to loaning money, Uh, but it's virtually impossible to take all money and isolate it, it for righteous causes only. But Jesus was not against banks. When he tells the parable of the talents, he said to the one man, well, you could have at least taken the money and put it in the bank and gained some interest for me. Uh, but he didn't even do that because he was such a poor steward, reflective, of course, of his uh, deficient spiritual life. So I don't think your reasoning is, is sound, Um Unless, of course, you know, you have problems with the military, and then that's another biblical issue that you need to investigate and and work through. You might want to listen to my message when I come to Romans 13. I think that would be helpful to you, though I've addressed it in the past in other uh, venues. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All right.
0: 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. And our next listener writes: Please explain Colossians one twenty-three. I know that the scriptures appear to teach that a Christian cannot lose their salvation, but do you think that this scripture and others like it were intended to keep the Christian from becoming spiritually lazy and apathetic? Well, that's a good question. Um,
1: Colossians one twenty-three is uh, one. A verse out of about um, 10 or 12, depending on how you count them, because there's a couple of parallel passages that at first glance seem to indicate that somehow we might be able to lose our salvation. Um, and of course, the Bible is very clear that Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. God uses that method Himself within the Word of God. He argues Scripture with Scripture, and we find a model for. Uh, understanding how we should interpret the Word of God. So if God inspired the whole of the Bible, and he did, and if he inspired it without error, and since God is infallible and cannot lie and always tells the truth, then he wrote the words infallibly in with full uh, inspiration of the Spirit. And that's an important issue in our day because there are many, in our um, state, in our country, that even in our own town, that deny biblical infallibility. Uh, You have mainline denominations uh, like United Methodists, like the Presbyterian Church United States of America, that do not believe in biblical infallibility. You have Baptist denominations like Cooperative Baptists. They held their statewide meeting right here in our own town this year, uh, they deny biblical infallibility. Uh, they uh, will be quick to use the same terminology, uh, but they redefine it. Sure, the Bible's inspired. They would say they believe in the inspiration of the Bible, but they don't believe in verbal plenary inspiration. That is, that every single word of the Bible is indeed inspired. And that's, uh, that's important because that's what the Bible teaches, verbal plenary inspiration. And that's why I will not link arms or do anything with a pastor that does not believe in verbal plenary inspiration, because then I'm endorsing his ministry, and I believe that takes away from the blessing of God on a church or a ministry or whatever the setting may be. In either case, God plainly says here in Colossians 1, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed, and here's the verse in question, and again, if God inspired the whole Bible and he did, and he inspired it without error, and you have over 150 passages in the New Testament that directly teach the eternal security of the believer, and about 10 that at first glance, if not read contextually, grammatically, um, seem to indicate you can lose your salvation, then a good rule of thumb is you always interpret what is unclear in light of what is very clear. So he says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, was made a minister. So he's talking to believers, not to unbelievers. He's talking to believers who were once alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil, and yet they were reconciled. So he's not talking about people who haven't been saved, but people who have been saved, who are reconciled, through the death of the Lord Jesus, by his holy and blameless life and sinless blood that he shed on our behalf. Um, With that said, you have to read verse 23, not separate from the audience, but in the context of the people that he's speaking of, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. Some people read this verse and say, well, you're saved through the death of Christ by grace alone, but somehow you uh, keep that salvation by the things that you do. Now, you don't keep that salvation by the things you do. You may prove that salvation by the things you do, but you don't keep it. Now, without um, arguing purely from the Greek, though there is a powerful argument in the Greek, there are four different classes of conditional statements in the Greek New Testament. This is what's called a first-class conditional statement. It does not mean something shall be true if something else is true he's not using the word uh in greek but he's using the word ai uh, transliterated ei it meant something was if something else is true and so if you are a child of god uh, these things will be true Uh, he uses the same construction in chapter 3 and verse 1 if you have been raised up with christ keep seeking the things above where christ is seated at the right hand of god Again, it's a a first-class conditional statement. It is assumed to be true. And so you could translate it, since then you have been raised up with Christ. Since indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. These people are established, they're steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which they've heard, which is evidence of their genuine, genuine conversion. But even if you didn't know Greek, you would know in light of the 150 clear passages in the Bible that teaches we cannot lose our salvation, that this might be, must be understood in light of that. And indeed, the Bible teaches here, as it does in other places, that a mark of genuine conversion is that someone will indeed uh, continue in the faith. He's not here talking about acts of faith, but it's articular in the faith. Uh, He's talking about the body of truth that we call the Word of God that we embrace as Christians. So there are um, acts of faith that sometimes Christians will, uh, you know, waver on or fail on. But here he's speaking about continuing in the faith um, that is those things that we believe and hold that make us uh, born-again people in God's sight. A little bit later, in a much later book, I preached a, a, out of the book of 2 John about a year ago. I've never heard a sermon in my life on 2 John. Now, I've heard one or two verses quoted, but I've never heard a sermon on the book of 2 John. Never heard it taught in my life. And so I, I said, what two books have I never heard that I've always wanted to hear a sermon on? 2 John and Obadiah. So uh, I preached them. I could hardly find good commentaries on Obadiah. There are virtually none um the good thing about the training that God has blessed me with at Dallas Seminary is they trained us to write commentaries based on the language training and skills that they gave us. So we're not dependent on them. But with that said, I don't believe that God can speak to me alone and not speak to other people. So I also read other commentaries to see how people have understood it in its historical setting. With that said, he says in 2nd John, this short little letter and in verse 9, there's only one chapter, 2nd John 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. What is he saying? He's saying very simply that abiding or what the Protestant reformers refer to as perseverance of the saints is a mark of genuine conversion. And that's really what Colossians one twenty three is teaching. He says, listen, you know, God's committed all the way to the end to present you before him holy and blameless. Since indeed, or if indeed, uh, even if you took it as conditional, it's a condition that is true of every born-again Christian, as 2 John 9 teaches. Uh, that a true Christian will persevere. When uh, the Protestant Reformers spoke of perseverance of the saints, it was not simply once saved, always saved, though that was indeed included in the doctrine. But what they were affirming is that if indeed you have been saved forever, you will persevere. You will walk with God. You will never deny the faith. You will continue in the faith you may stumble in acts of faith, but you will continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. That's what Colossians 1 is affirming. So if anything, it's teaching just the opposite of losing your salvation. It's a reminder of our security in Christ.
0: Five two five one eight five nine, toll free 877 or you can email us at tbl at wagp.net. Our next caller just dictated their question. They'd like you to give scriptures that teach that a husband is to respect his wife. This caller would like to share them with a Christian man who speaks very disrespectfully to his wife.
1: Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives some instruction on the role that husbands and wives have towards one another. And in Ephesians 5, he says, wives, uh, be to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, if you have uh, the New American Standard, you'll see the word subject is in italics, meaning it's not there in that verse, but it's implied in the Greek because that's the subject that he's is addressing. Uh, he's just said in the two prior verses that uh, always giving thanks in all things in the name of our Lord Jesus to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he says, wives, to your own husbands. Uh, And so the NAS is correct in adding that. But in Colossians 3.18, lest somebody think that that's uh, less than accurate. It is uh, in the parallel passage, plainly taught, wives be subject, not in italics, in the Greek text, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And then in Colossians 3.19, husbands love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Uh again here in Ephesians five it's a more extended passage of the role of a man, for he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, and that's the reason for subjection. But as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. And then he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself, the church in all of her glory. And so there is an unconditional love that a man is to express a willful kind of love. Agapao or agape. We often anglicize it. We speak of agape love. Uh, it speaks of willful love. It can be used negatively in the Bible, uh, like in John three, where it says men agapao, they they love their evil deeds. They willfully chose evil over Christ, and so they don't come to the light. As a result, here it's shows positively of God's kind of willful love, where we love our wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church. And so, how did Christ love? Did Christ disrespect people? Did he disrespect women? certainly not if anyone elevated women it was the lord jesus in a society that looked at women like chattel uh, they had an entirely different he had an entirely different perspective on women and of course we've already been told in ephesians 4:39 this is just part of being a christian it has nothing to do with whether you're married or single But it would apply in either setting. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. So God wants our speech not to be corrupted, but he wants it to be building. He wants it to edify. He wants it to build up. And so again, in Colossians chapter 3, going back to that book, and in verse 8, he says... Um, that there is to be no abusive speech from our mouth. Um, We're also told that our words are to be seasoned with grace. So they're to build up. They're not to tear down. Uh, That's just part of what it means to love our wives and to show them respect as a human being, and especially as uh, co-heirs with Christ, uh, as God calls uh, married couples. So. Anyway, what this person might want to do is if they really want to study this in more detail would be to go uh to search the scriptures.org and there's a number of uh sermons that I've done uh on for married couples uh, from 1 Peter 3 uh 1 through uh 8. You might want to listen to that or the text on Ephesians 5:22 through 33 and I think you would find that very helpful and very practical in terms of some steps. Uh, that you might be able to help encourage your friend with.
0: All right, about 15 minutes left in the program. And Ryan from South Boston writes, How do we keep consistency with God? I get in my quiet time in the morning and pray, and I feel the Lord. But come 2 p.m., I've forgotten everything I learned that morning and don't find myself walking in the Spirit. I want to keep myself tuned into God every day, all day. How do I do that? Well, I think a couple
1: things. Remember that a quiet time is more than just, you know, checking off a box to make ourselves feel good, like uh, we've, uh, you know, read a chapter of Scripture, you know, a chapter a day to keep the devil away kind of thing. And and many Christians do this, and they can't remember for the life of them what it is they read that day. Well, I read a chapter of Scripture. What'd you read? Well, you read Numbers 22. Okay, well, what's Numbers 22 about? Well, I know. Uh, let's see. Uh, um, well, I, I can't remember. Then we really haven't read it. And so what's helpful is to learn inductive Bible study methods. And if you've never done inductive Bible study, there are good booklets that will teach you the methodology by taking you through passages that ask you questions. And as you understand some of the principles that are taught through those booklets, then you'll find yourself doing inductive Bible study on your own. So there are several that I recommend. There's one set called the 10 Basic Steps to Christian Maturity. Uh, It's been in print for over 50 years, uh, published by Campus Crusade for Christ. It's an excellent little series. There's also a series uh, called Design for Discipleship. It's uh, put out by the Navigators. Originally, there were six volumes in that when it came out in the 70s. I think about a decade or so ago, they added a seventh volume, basically entitled How to Do Inductive Bible Study, and they teach you doing that based on the principles you saw modeled in the first six books, uh, but they teach you how to do it using uh, 1 Thessalonians. So again, what you want to do is read the Bible reflectively. So you might read a chapter of Scripture, and after you read the chapter, say, well, what paragraph was most meaningful to me out of that chapter? Well, that assumes that you're not reading, you know, with a fan on, as we used to say in college. You know, people would say, well, you know, you have to read. um, When I was in seminary, we had an average of about 500 pages a day we had to read. And so sometimes people would read with the fan on, they would say, you know, meaning their mind was, out there and never, never land, but uh, they got through those 500 pages and say, yes, I I read 500 pages of, you know, uh, outside reading, outside of the class. No, you want to read reflectively and thoughtfully. So you go back and say, well, what paragraph within the chapter, and then what verse within that paragraph? And then you might even take that verse and write it out on a three-by-five card. But again, you know, it's like a wheel with four spokes in it. And uh, there has to be balance in the Christian life. Vertically, we talk to God in prayer. Uh, God speaks to us through his word. So let's call those the vertical spokes on the wheel. And then there's the side spokes of fellowship and evangelism. And all four must be in place. If if we read the Bible, but we're not in fellowship with a local assembly, we can't expect our life to be vibrant. If we read the Bible, but we don't talk and pray to the Lord, we can't expect our life to be vibrant. If uh, we are engaged horizontally with the church, but we're not engaged with lost people in evangelism, we can't expect our life to be vibrant. So there's this balance in the Christian life that's essential to to spiritual health. And again, we cover this in great detail in the Back to Basics series, which you can listen to online at SearchTheScriptures.org. It's our discipleship class, and it will teach you really how to walk with the Lord where you're not just living off of emotions, but you're living steadily, uh, dependently
0: on the Spirit of God. All right. Very good. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Good morning. Thanks for taking my call.
0: Yeah, thanks for calling a, today. Go ahead.
2: I have a particular question. I um, heard you mention earlier about some um, something about some Baptist denominations. And I've been attending a um, Southern Baptist church here in Savannah for the past six weeks. Um, I haven't heard anything, you know, from the pulpit that would, you know, cause any concern. But I was wondering what you might uh, think about that denomination as far as, their, um, as far as their theology.
1: Well, it's overall, it is a good denomination. It's the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Uh, there were some years of great turmoil amongst the Southern Baptists in the 1970s and 80s because what was beginning to happen is they had ignored the principle that's taught in the book of Jude to watch carefully for those who will sneak in unaware. And people began to sneak into their seminaries who were not orthodox in their Christian faith. And the very tenor and emphasis of those seminaries was radically changing. And so they were putting out uh, books that were just horrendous. I remember reading a book by a professor at Southeastern Seminary uh, advocating a woman's right to an abortion. This was a this was a man at a Southern Baptist Seminary. The Broadman Commentary that came out in the 1970s said the first eleven chapters of Genesis were not historical, but they were just a myth. Uh, teaching us spiritual lessons, and they were denying the historicity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So, um, they were in deep trouble. And so, what began to take place is that some of the conservatives were waking up because people weren't going to the annual conventions, and that's where decisions are made. Because at Southern Baptist conventions, you have presidents who are elected, Annually, and they are involved in picking board members for every major institution across the board, whether it was their hospitals or colleges or seminaries. They have, for the most part, lost their colleges. There's a couple of rare exceptions, but for the most part, they've lost their colleges. Like Baylor, they lost it. Um, it was once a great Southern Baptist school. Now it's it's gone. It's gone down the tubes. And it will do much harm to people who go there thinking that this is good, sought, sound theology. There's actually one Southern Baptist college here in the state of South Carolina, North Greenville, uh, that is uh, really a great school, and they've 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 towed the line. There are seminaries they were able to recapture, but I say all that to say that there are still Southern Baptist pastors out there who went through some of those seminaries by their own choice, knowing where they stood, who are not orthodox. Most of them are. Um, What began to take place as they regained control of their own schools and pointed them back to conservatism, conservatism, meaning a belief in the infallible Bible, is other groups began to spring up to break off out of them. And so Cooperative Baptists that were started by Cecil Sherman and followed by different presidents who are not, you know, orthodox in their faith, they're they're heretical, Uh, they started these schools. And so in South Carolina, for instance, we have Cooperative Baptists. In our own town, we have two Cooperative Baptist churches, uh, many times people try to hide that, they try to dismiss that, but they're here. And fundamental to Cooperative Baptists is not only a denial of complementarianism, where they put women in uh, pastorates, but more fundamentally, because there are some conservatives who've done that, I think, who misunderstand the Scripture, but um, their reason for doing that is different from conservatives, but more fundamentally is they deny biblical inerrancy. So don't let anyone fool you. If someone says they are a cooperative Baptist, they deny biblical infallibility. And so what they are saying is that the Bible is inspired in spots, and they have to be inspired to spot the spots that are inspired. That doesn't mean they're necessarily evil people. Sometimes they're wonderful people, very kind people. There's a lot of kind, lost people in this world. That doesn't make them born again, and it certainly doesn't make them orthodox in what they believe and what they espouse. So um, this is not some small thing. This is the thing that's driving the ship in America, where the church is becoming less and less vocal, less and less relevant. This is what's opening the door to homosexuality. So like in this state, Southern Baptists are associated with the Lutheran Theological Seminary. I say Southern Baptists, excuse me. Cooperative Baptists are associated with the Lutheran Theological Seminary in Columbia. That is absolutely heretical absolutely heretical, but that's where they're sending people to go to seminary since they don't have their own means. So one, I would find out if indeed the pastor ascribes the Baptist faith and message of of that church, if he does and he believes that he's not just lying because there are some guys who are in the ministry who don't want to lose their job, who like job security, and they're not honest. And they will say, well, we ascribe to the Baptist faith and message, but they don't really believe it. So you ask the hard questions because it's a good, solid doctrinal statement, or they hide behind the fact that they say, well, we're under the Lordship of Christ. We're not a creedal people. That's absurd. They are creedal people. Baptists have always been creedal people. They do believe in creeds. You can't say I'm under the Lordship of Christ unless he's God. That's a creedal statement. That's a doctrinal statement. You can't say I'm under the Lordship of Christ unless you believe in biblical infallibility as he taught. That every single word right down to the tense and letter and smallest stroke of a pen was inspired, which was Jesus' view of the Scripture, and his view ought to be our view. But if the church doesn't believe that, or if the church is dual-aligned, well, well, we're Southern Baptists and Cooperative Baptists. The handwriting is already on the wall. Liberalism has already walked in the front door and they are drawing away ignorant, naive Christians into uh, really waters of great turmoil because those Christians don't know any better because very often they've been untaught in sound doctrine. And that's why pastors are to teach sound doctrine over 40 times in the New Testament. We are instructed to either teach or to be sound in doctrine. People say, well, doctrine, that divides. Yes, it does. It divides good from evil, right from wrong. The word doctrine, the Greek word, just means teaching. And so what happens in some churches is the Bible really is not taught. And that's how people are willing to accept You know, these men that come in who are less than orthodox, they don't know any better. They hear them use the same language of historical orthodox Christianity. What they don't understand is that these men have put different meanings to the same words. So when they say, well, we believe Jesus is risen from the dead, you can't just take that at face value. Do you believe he literally physically rose from the dead or just spiritually? Um, There is a pastor in Hilton Head who says Jesus spiritually was raised from the dead, but not physically. That's heresy. Uh, We believe the Bible is inspired in every single word or just in spots. Um, Are just the thoughts inspired or are the actual words inspired? Some people say, well, all that matters is the thoughts. No, the, the words to have proper thoughts have to be inspired. Just like math, you you can't have math without numbers, and you know numbers function in math, and they're they're inseparable. So they use the same language sometimes, but they mean entirely different things. And um, so Southern Baptists, listen, my ordination is as a Southern Baptist, and um, if uh, I was ordained in a Southern Baptist church, though I pastor a non denominational church, but if Southern Baptists ever officially as a denomination said, we now, you know, deny this major Orthodox doctrine of the faith, I would rescind my ordination. Totally, I would renounce it, because that's what the Bible would teach me
0: to do. All right. I think we've time for one more. of Psalm 52, verses 6 through 7, Brad writes from Bluffton, the righteous will see in fear, and will laugh at him, saying, "Behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and was strong in his evil desire." Some translations render the verb "laugh" as "mock." Doesn't this seem like the attitude? Of, or this doesn't seem like the attitude a Christian should have towards sinners and their downfall. Should we mock at others' downfall, or have the attitude of, "But for the grace of God, there go I." Well, there's a divine mocking,
1: there's a divine laughing, and then there's the laughing and mocking of derision that doesn't please God. It's just like a jealousy. There's a holy jealousy. God is a jealous God. And there's an evil jealousy that displeases God where he says love is not jealous. There's an unrighteous anger uh, that is displeasing to the Lord, and yet there's a righteous anger so much so that the Bible can command us to be angry and to sin not. So there's some forms of anger that are legitimate. Um, And so what you read in Psalm 52 is very similar to what you read in Psalm 2 of God himself, where it says the nations are in an uproar. They're devising vain and evil things that the rulers of this world are taking counsel against the Lord, against his Messiah. That's what they're doing in our day. We have uh, people in our Congress, people in the executive branch of our government Who are taking their stand against the Word of God, where God says homosexuality is an abomination, and they're smarter. And they are saying, no, oh, you know, it's an equal right and it's a status that should be protected and, and upheld and encouraged. And, and so the governor of, of, of California, Jerry Brown, has come out with now allowing kindergartners and grammar school kids to choose what shower room they want to go into and which bathroom they want to use because they don't know whether they're boys or girls. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and someday he will speak to them in his anger. Parallel thought in Psalm 52. We're out of time. Hope that helps. God bless you. Have a good day.